Good, good evening, everyone. I was almost ready to say good morning. <laughs> Caught myself mid-phrase. It is not morning. It is evening. Thank you all for coming tonight. I hope you all, uh, was that? Oh. Oh, okay. Yeah, it'll be a long day if this is morning. Thank you all for coming tonight. Uh, let's bow before the Lord and pray and ask his blessings on our Bible study tonight. Father in heaven, we thank you that we can gather together tonight. We thank you for the family of God and for the fellowship of believers, for the opportunity to just talk together as brothers and sisters in Christ tonight. Thank you that we can share our concerns and our prayer requests with one another and with you and that we can pray together and lift those up before your throne. We thank you, Father, for your word, for the uh, everlasting wisdom and truth that it is. Lord, I pray that you would guide us tonight into understanding your word and uh, seeing how we might apply it to our lives. And uh, we pray, Lord, that you would be honored and glorified in what we do here tonight. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, tonight we're moving into chapter 4 of Ecclesiastes. And we're still in this section of Ecclesiastes where uh, the teacher, Kohelet, he is investigating different areas of life and really just reflecting on the enigmatic, mysterious, complex nature of life in a sin-cursed world. And tonight in chapter four, he is focusing on four different problems, though they are somewhat related to one another. And I've called this four problems, the difficulties of life in a sin-cursed world. And the four problems that he addresses in this chapter are these. The first is the problem of oppression. The second is the problem of rivalry or envy. The third is the problem of isolation or loneliness. And then the fourth is the problem of government or of leadership. And so in verse number one, with the problem of oppression, he says, again, I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors and they have no comforter. Whenever you're reading through Ecclesiastes and you see this phrase um, again, and I looked or and I saw that is an indication. It's kind of a structural indicator in Ecclesiastes that he's looking at a new topic, uh, a new matter of his investigation. And so he, he says he turned and he looked and he saw oppression. Last week, we saw the problem of injustice where in the courtroom, where there's supposed to be justice, where there's supposed to be righteousness, there was injustice, there was dishonesty. But now he's looking at a related but different aspect of life in a difficult world, and that is oppression. And we might define oppression essentially as uh, a kind of a generic definition would be anytime someone in a position of power uh, makes it hard for someone who is not in a position of power. So in that, that oppression can take on many forms. It could be economic oppression. 
the wealth, wealthy over the poor. Uh, it could be um, authoritative oppression, those who have power, authority over those who don't. Um, so it, it can be in various forms. It can be hard form oppression, such as you know actual physical uh, punishment, uh, bullying, but it can also take softer forms, but still devastating, uh, such as just manipulation, um, cheating people out of what they should have, uh, manipulating the system to your advantage, to the disadvantage of other people. So there's all kinds of forms that it can take. And so he's looking at the world, life under the sun, and in his observation, in his investigation, he sees oppression everywhere. And this concerns him. It's, it's a burden on him. Now, this is 25, 27, 2800 years ago that this is being written. And we could say the exact same statement today in our world. You can look out at our world and you can see oppression all over the place. Now, in America, oppression might look different than in other places in the world, but we still have oppression here. I mean, it's, it might be a little bit more of its softer forms. Uh, in America, uh, we probably have more of it in terms of economic, uh, the, the wealthy, uh, the elite, uh, controlling and dominating a lot of spheres of influence. Um, those who are really poor, uh, not really having much influence or much of a say. Uh, but in other places in the world, uh, the oppression is more overt. It, it's physical. It's more easily seen. Um, one of the commentaries that I was reading um, in just his kind of devotional or theological reflections on this passage was commenting on some of the different forms of oppression that are in our world. And he gave all of these different statistics about how children are an oppressed class across the world in all kinds of ways. Um, forced uh, child labor in a lot of places, um, human trafficking, sexual enslavement, um, children being sold into debt slavery. Children are an oppressed class in a lot of places in the world. That was just one of the examples that he gave. So there's, there's oppression. It's here, it's everywhere. It is a part of our human existence under the sun in a sin-cursed world. And verse number one, he focuses on the people who are the, the recipients of that oppression. And he says, I saw their tears. They have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors and they have no comforter. He says the exact same thing twice for emphasis to show that, that they're in this difficult situation and they don't have help. So they're in misery. You, you, he describes their tears and then he says, and they don't have any help. Someone to come alongside of them and to help them out of this oppression. And what's interesting about what he concludes then is that he doesn't really offer a solution for this. He, his conclusion in verse number two is, 
I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. His initial conclusion, and I I call it initial or provisional, is that at least when you die, you're free from oppression. So here he's talking about the oppressed, the oppressed who are still alive versus the oppressed who have already died. And he's saying, at least if you're dead, you're free from the oppression. But then he goes even a step further in verse three, and he says, but better than both is the one who has never been born, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. So for the dead, they're able to be free from the oppression, from the misery that they were living in in this world. But then he says, even better than that is someone who never even existed. They've never been oppressed and they've never seen other people being oppressed. They've never had to, uh, to live in this sin-cursed world. Now, again, like a lot of what the teacher Kohelet is doing, these are, these are provisional statements. These are observations of life. This isn't the final conclusion of everything. He is essentially what he's doing here is he's calling our attention to a problem. He's not necessarily giving us a solution here now in this particular moment, but he's calling our attention to the problem. And again, putting in front of us the fact that that life is difficult in this world. And you remember the key word of Ecclesiastes. If you've been with us for the last several weeks, then the key word of Ecclesiastes is this Hebrew word, hevel. And really we struggle to find a one word equivalent for that in English. Probably the best would be something like enigmatic, frustrating. But I was thinking about it today. And I think one way of describing what the writer of Ecclesiastes means by Hevel is not the way it's supposed to be. Now, that's not a very good one word translation of one word, but I think that kind of captures what he is wrestling with in his observations of the world. And it almost makes me think of Genesis 3. Because in Genesis 3, we have Adam and Eve sinning, right? So you have the Garden of Eden, which is a paradise. And in the Garden of Eden, everything is as it's supposed to be, right? Everything is operating according to its created design. People are in harmony with God. People are in harmony with each other. People are in harmony with their surroundings, with the created world. Everything's in harmony. Everything's at peace. To use the Hebrew word, everything is shalom. Everything is right. But then Adam and Eve sin. They disobey God. They, they take on human autonomy, their own desire to run their own lives, to determine for themselves what is right and wrong. And God comes to them and says, there are now consequences for that choice. And the consequences for that choice are a curse on the serpent, You're not going to have to go on the belly uh, and eat dust the rest of your days. And eventually a seed of the woman is going to crush your head. That's the curse on the serpent. But there's also a, a, 
a consequence for the woman. You're now going to have pain in childbearing. You're going to have pain in childbearing. There's also going to be tension in your relationship with your husband. For the man, he says, your primary realm of activity is going to be filled with frustration and toil in the thorns and thistles and weeds of the ground. You're going to do your labor. And really, I think both of those curses that God placed on childbearing, on working the field, they're they're symbolic or representative of really all of the pain and misery and frustration and difficulty that this world experiences as a result of sin. So because of sin, we have thorns and thistles, but also because of sin, we have heart disease and we have cancer and we have tornadoes and we have earthquakes and we have hurricanes and tsunamis. And because of sin, we are, our bodies age and they, they start to ache and get, have pains and eventually they die. All of this is because of sin. What he's saying here in verses one through three, the problem of oppression, it's hevel. It's not the way it was supposed to be, right? This is not the way it was supposed to be, but this is what is in a sin-cursed world. This is a world that is operating post Genesis three fifteen to 18 and the curse that God placed on Adam and Eve and on the ground. This is how it is. And so it's, it's a difficult existence. At times it's frustrating. At times it seems futile. At times it seems elusive. You can't get your fingers on it. At times it's enigmatic and confusing. And one of the things that he observed that was deeply troubling to him was oppression. People oppressing one another and no one there to help. By implication, I think we as Christians can take a lesson from that. And even though the writer of Ecclesiastes doesn't say, here's what you should do. We know from the the bigger pattern of scripture, from the larger teaching of scripture, that we know what, how we should treat one another, don't we? We know that we as Christians should be agents for, of goodwill. Jesus said in the Beatitudes, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. Not blessed are the oppressors, but blessed are the meek, the humble, because they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the peacemakers, the ones who try to make peace between the oppressor and the oppressed. So we know how we should uh, act in response to the oppression that we see. We should seek to be an agent of change, be salt and light in the communities where we live, in our families, in wherever we have influence, to have our eyes open to see those who are marginalized or oppressed or beaten down and to try to advocate for them and advocate for that which is better. And eventually, when Jesus comes back, there will be a world in which there will be no more oppression, right? So there is coming a day when Jesus comes back that all will be as it should be again. But in the meantime, we live in a sin-cursed world We should be agents of change in the midst of that world all the time realizing there's still going to be complexities and difficulties that we're not going to be able to overcome, at least in this age. So the problem of oppression. And then he turns his attention to the problem of rivalry. And it's a different phenomenon that he sees in the world, but it is somewhat related to oppression because sometimes the envy and the rivalry that we have for one another can lead to one person oppressing another. 
And so he turns his eyes, his attention to envy and rivalry that he sees between people. In verse four, he says, and I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless or hevel, a chasing after the wind. He says, I looked out and I saw that the labor, the effort, the work that people were doing was motivated primarily by one thing. And that was their desire to be better than the other person. Out of envy, out of rivalry, out of strife, out of not only keeping up with the Joneses, but beating the Joneses, right? That's what he says. That's how I saw people operating. That was their motivation is just trying to outdo one another and trying to be better than other people. Now, which raises several important questions for application. And that is, what is a right motivation for work? What is a right motivation for the labor, for the things that we do? Is it wrong to want to do the very best that we can do in what we put our hands to? I don't think so. I don't think it's wrong to excel and to try to be the best that we can be with the abilities and talents that God has given us. I think we can do that to the glory of God. Uh, I think we can seek for the, the best interests of ourselves and our family in the labor that we do. But the problem is, is when we seek for the best interests of ourselves and our family to the detriment of others, that's when it becomes a problem. If we can, if we can seek to excel and seek our well-being and the well-being of our family while at the same time helping to lift others up around us, then that's good motivation. But if our motivation is, no, I want it all, this is a zero-sum game, I take, you lose, then that's a wrong motivation. So we can have a desire for achievement. We can have a desire, uh, you know, we can have ambition of wanting to, to do good things and to do the best that we can. But if we're motivated simply to one-up one another or to advantage ourselves to the detriment of other people, he says, this is just, you're, you're, you're going about life all the wrong way. This is not the way it's supposed to be. This is, this is upside down. So maybe then we shouldn't work. If working because we're envious and jealous of other people is hevel, if it's meaningless, if it's toilsome, then maybe we shouldn't work. So he quotes a proverb. Verse five, fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Well, maybe I shouldn't work at all. Folding the hands is a Hebrew idiom for basically twiddling your thumbs. So we would say twiddling our thumbs, the Hebrews would say folding your hands. So basically it's an idiom for doing nothing, right? Just being idle. Well, if working out of envy or rivalry is bad, maybe I should do nothing. Well, the problem is Proverbs teaches us that if you do nothing, then you end up ruining yourself. You end up consuming yourself. You end up with nothing. So that's not a good way to go about it either. So what's his conclusion? Verse six, better one handful with tranquility 
than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. What is he saying here? He seems to be taking a mediating position between verse 4 and verse 5. Verse 4 is toil, 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 work, 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 be better than the other person, uh, com- competitiveness, I'm better than you, and, and see, always seeking for more and more. That's verse 4. Verse 5 is the exact opposite. Do nothing, be idle, be lazy, and come to ruin. He seems to be taking a mediating position in verse 6, and that is that there is a balance that we can have between labor and rest. So we can work and we can seek to do what is good and we can put our efforts into that which is good and do it for the right reason. But we also have to realize that if we put everything into that, we're chasing after the wind. We're just grasping for that which isn't there. So be content with one handful that you get from your labor and also enjoying some of life, some of God's good gifts, like he said at the end of chapter three, enjoy the food, enjoy the drink, enjoy the companionship that God has given you. That's our portion in this life. So work and labor, do good things, but also have the gift of God to be able to enjoy the things that you're working toward and have some tranquility. So be content with one handful, have some peace and tranquility instead of just work, 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 work. So you can get two handfuls, but then you're just chasing after the wind and you, and you have no enjoyment, no satisfaction out of anything in life. So the problem of rivalry or envy, or we might even say working for the wrong motivation. It's a, it's a, uh, it's a trap that we can fall into in this sin-cursed world, but it only leads to ruin. Then he addresses the problem of isolation or loneliness, verses 7 through 12. He says, again, I saw something meaningless or hevel under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. Now, he doesn't really tell us why this man was alone, and we shouldn't read too much into it like he's a Scrooge, like a a lonely miser intentionally or anything like that. He just says there was a man who didn't have any family. So no spouse, no son, no brother. For whatever circumstances, he's by himself. He doesn't have anybody to share life with. And so without anybody to share life with, he pours his life into his work, into his labor. But yet he gets so far and he opens his eyes and he concludes, what am I doing all this for? So he seems to be falling into the problem back in verse number four of work, 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 toil, 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 be better than the Joneses, But then he realizes, why am I doing this? What's, I have no one to share this with. I I am depriving myself of enjoyment. I mean, I'm depriving myself of tranquility, of one handful with tranquility. And I'm depriving myself, importantly, of community. The emphasis in verses 7 through 12 
is on the need, the importance, the benefit of community. So he says two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. Not that this is ultimate profit. Remember the original question back in chapter one, verse three, where do we find profit? Where do we find gain in this world under the sun? Well, this is not ultimate, but one way that we can find a little bit of return on our labor in this world is to enjoy it with other people, to have some companionship and community along the way. Two are better than one. He says, if either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. It's almost, he almost seems to be reflecting somewhat on the comment that God makes in Genesis chapter 2. It is not good for man to be alone. There is, God designed us for a relationship. He designed us for community. He designed us for relationship with himself, with God, but he also designed us for relationship with one another. We are of all of the creatures on the earth made in the image of God and are made to be relational beings. And he's affirming that need for community and friendship here in this passage. If you fall down and you're alone, you're in trouble. But if you fall down and you have someone to help you up, then there is benefit there. There is someone to help you. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Again, don't read anything of a sexual nature into that. This is not necessarily talking about uh, husband and wife or lovers or anything like that. We have to put our our modern Western, uh, everybody sleeps in their own bed uh, mindset uh, aside for a second. And remember that in the ancient world, if you wanted to stay warm, you all slept together in the same bed. You, there, this was common in ancient times. And so the idea here is companionship and mutual warmth and that two are better than one. The one may be overpowered Two can defend themselves. So the common thread through all of these illustrations is two are better than one. So if you fall down, someone can help you up. Someone can help you stay warm. If you're overpowered, if somebody attacks you along the roadside, it's better if you're not alone. And then a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Um, I don't. You may have heard this before, uh, but... This last phrase of verse number 12, I think has probably been over-allegorized, over-spiritualized in the interpretation of Ecclesiastes. And let me just make this statement, but anytime you see three in the Bible, don't automatically assume it's a reference to the Trinity. We're reading too much into this verse if we do that. Um, The pastor who preached our wedding used this verse and said the three strands represent the husband, the wife, and Christ. I mean, it's, it's, it's a neat analogy, but it's really not what he's talking about here. He's not talking about the Trinity. He's, he's not talking about anything like that. He's talking about community. He's talking about friendship. He's talking about uh, uh, relationships in which two are better than one. Well, let's do even better than that. Three are better than two. 
That's what he's doing in this passage. So the importance of, of community, the importance of relationship. And we have in our world a, a breakdown of community. Which is really kind of ironic when you think about it because we have more ways to be connected than at any other time in human history. And yet, we are actually more alone than we've ever been at any other time in human history. Those, all those friendships that you have on Facebook, those are not real friendships. You might have 900 friends on Facebook. Those are not all friends. Those are not all people that you could call if you had a flat tire and say, hey, come help me. Those are not all friends. All these uh, virtual relationships that we have, they're not real relationships. God designed us to be in community. God designed us to be in relationship with one another. And the church is a major part of that. The church is a significant part of God's plan for us as Christians. Just read through the New Testament. And as you're reading through the New Testament, every time you come across a phrase, something like one another or for each other, just mark that down and you'll find hundreds of them. Because the major, a major theme throughout the New Testament is that we do Christian life together as a family of God, as a people of God. And so we are, we are a family, we're a community of believers. And so you have the church as a community, you have the family unit as community. The family unit is under attack in our world, isn't it? Friendship is under attack in our world. And, and one way that that is true is because everything now in our culture is so over-sexualized that the idea of platonic friendships is hard for people to even imagine. And so we have, we have a crisis of loneliness in our culture. Even though we have so many ways that we can connect, they're not real. They're virtual, they're fake. We need face-to-face relationships. We need relationships with people in the same room and the last year with COVID has only intensified our isolation. Again, this is Hevel. This is not the way it's supposed to be. We're supposed to be in relationship with one another. And then there's the problem of government. And admittedly, these last few verses of this chapter are, are pretty difficult to interpret. And a lot of different views have been taken on them but I'll try to help us see the the big point. In verse 13, he says, Better a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer knows how to heed a warning. So one of the uh, emphasis throughout Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, Job, is the importance of wisdom. And he says, it's better to have a king on the throne who is young, who was at one time poor, but who is wise, than to have an old king who has a lot of experience, but he's a fool. And one thing that makes him a fool 
is he is hard-hearted and stubborn and no longer heeds instruction. He's no longer open to learning anything or heeding a warning. The youth may have come from prison to the kingship, or he may have been born in poverty within his kingdom. So he's talking about this youth that was wise but rose to kingship. I saw that all who lived and walked under the sun followed the youth, the king's successor. This is where part of the difficulty comes in in verse 15. The commentaries kind of go different ways here on, are we introducing a new person into this in verse 15? In other words, is there a third person who succeeds the youth, the young king of verses 13 and 14? Or are we still talking about the young king who succeeds the old king. What, what, are, we, what are we dealing with here in verse 15? And, and there's no real consensus on that. Uh, I, I tend to go in the way that we're still talking about two people in this passage. We're still talking about an old foolish king who can't learn anymore, who no longer te- heeds instruction, and a young wise king who at one time was poor but rose to a position of leadership. And it says... If we take that view, then at one point in verse 15, all these people are following the young king, the young wise king. But then verse 16 says, there was no end to all the people who were before them, but those who came later were not pleased with the successor. And one way of understanding this is that there was a time when the young king who was wise had a following and the people loved him as king. But then later on, another generation arose that was no longer enamored with this wise king. And they no longer approved of him, no longer liked his leadership. And then you've got the problem, if that's the way we're understanding this, then you've got the problem of a nation of people who no longer wants to follow a wise king. He says, this is not the way it's supposed to be. This is Hevel. This is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. And if I were to put just kind of an overriding summary point on verses 13 through 16, is that the realm of government, the realm of um, human authority over areas and people is open to all kinds of the problems and difficulties that Ecclesiastes describes. So oppression, injustice, wealth, wealthy over the poor, uh, you know, a, a, a wise person dying, but a fool living, all these things that, that, the writer of Ecclesiastes says these things are just upside down. This is not the way it's supposed to be. All those things can happen in government, right? You can have bad leaders who are foolish. You can have uh, foolish people. You can have a wise leader, but foolish people who don't want to follow him. So all kinds of upside down, complex, enigmatic things can happen with government that are frustrating. It's just another one of the areas of life that is frustrating in a sin-cursed world. This is meaningless, a chasing after the wind, he says. 
So what can we do? What's, what's our takeaway from chapter four? Well, I think one takeaway from chapter four for us as Christians is just to remember that we do live in a sin-cursed world. We live in what Paul says in Romans 8 is a creation that is suffering from futility, that is subjected to frustration. And it is awaiting its redemption. So we live in a world, in a created realm, that is under the curse of futility and frustration. One way of saying it is this world is under the curse of hevel. And it's awaiting its redemption. So while we are in this, in the meantime, awaiting hope form of, of this world, there's gonna be oppression, there's gonna be injustice, there's gonna be things that are complex and mysterious and things that aren't the way they're supposed to be. And going back to chapter one, not always can we make straight what is crooked. So there are things that are crooked that we can't straighten. There are things that are just within God's providential control of the world. And one of the questions that, that we, we have asked ourselves and I've heard asked of me is, why doesn't God just fix everything now? You know, if, if we're moving toward a new heavens and a new earth and complete justice and complete peace and perfection, why doesn't God just do it now? Fix it now. Why is he waiting? And the only response I have is the response of Peter in Second Peter, where he says, the Lord hasn't come yet because he is long suffering. He's patient and he's allowing time for repentance. That's the only answer I have is that it's not yet time because God deems it not yet time and he's being patient and long-suffering with us as sinners. But we wish that time would come, don't we? We wish that Jesus would come, that this new heavens and new earth would be a reality. We want that to come. But in the meantime, we do live in a sin-cursed world where things are upside down, where things aren't the way they're supposed to be. So what can we do? Well, we have faith, right? We have faith and we have hope realizing that through faith and hope that this is not the final chapter of the story, right? It would be a pretty miserable existence if this is all humanity ever knew and was ever going to know. That would not be a good trajectory for human existence. So we have a hope that one day this is gonna be fixed. God's going to make everything right. So that gives us help in the moment. It gives us help day by day, knowing that we have hope. And may our hope, may our faith in Christ and in the gospel, may that give us uh, eyes to see ways that we can help alleviate oppression. Give us ways to uh, work and excel and do our very best in this world, but without giving in to the temptation of making it our all and of doing stuff out of rivalry and competition with one another. May we, in, in this world, um, seek to live out God's created purposes for us by establishing and developing relationships, developing our family relationships, 
healing broken relationships, developing and nurturing relationships within the church, the family of God, with our neighbors, with our community. It's how God designed us to be. And um, in government, do the best that we can to be wise citizens. And if we ever have opportunity to be in positions of leadership, to be wise leaders. So our role is limited. We're finite people. All we can do is be the salt and light that God has called us to be in our sphere of influence. And doing that while we live in a world that is still under the curse. But we do it in hope, don't we? As Paul says in Romans 8, God subjected creation to frustration, but he did it in hope. There is a redemption coming, and that's what we look forward to. Let's bow in prayer together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you've given us the wisdom of your word, the wisdom of Ecclesiastes. God, help us to learn from it tonight. Help us to see areas of our lives where we can uh, develop community, friendship, and live out the relational purposes for which you created us. God, give us um, opportunities to, to bless and to help those who may be oppressed, uh, to come alongside of them and be their comforter. Father, I pray that you would help us to pursue our labors and our endeavors in this world with the right motivation, which ultimately is to bring honor and glory to you, to do so out of love for you and love for neighbor, not out of selfish ambition or jealous rivalry with our neighbor. God, help us to be wise citizens, to live uh, in wisdom and in love before others. And Lord, may we do all this so that your name would be glorified. And we pray this through Christ, our Savior, our Redeemer. Amen.